Welcome to the Taking the Lead podcast, where we empower people to be unstoppable. I'm Christina Hapner with my co-hosts, Leslie Haskins and Timothy Cunio. So we've been off all summer. We've had a couple episodes, but we never got to fill in one in on like what we talked about beforehand, like my surprise Memorial Day trip. I'm an aunt now for the first time. Oh my goodness. So all the exciting things, my niece is adorable, like cutest thing I've ever seen. She was such a, she was born like four pounds, 13 ounces. So, so little, but so healthy and just so moving. But so that's fun. But I know we wanted to talk about Memorial Day since it's been. <laughs> I feel like you I, left the crowd, yeah. you know, gasping. Yeah. What because was going to happen? Where were you going? Right. Everyone, well, everyone at work thought I was getting Me. engaged, Leslie. I and I was like, no, it's not happening because, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> I, <laughs> because, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we went um, up north. So we went to, I had I had not been to like Mackinac Island and stuff since I was little. Mm-hmm. So we went, stayed right outside of Mackinac City, um, went to Mackinac Island. We went up to the Taquanamon Falls. I always say it wrong, but I think I said it right this time. Sounds right. Um, we went to Sault Ste. Marie and the Sulac. So lots of hiking, lots of fun outdoor activities, which I like. So it was a lot of fun. So you were surprised still. It was a great yeah. trip. Yeah, I was surprised. It was honestly Memorial Day weekend, though. It was really warm up there. Yeah. It said it was going to be cooler. So I packed the like warm clothes, but I was like, nope too hot but the island was great it was a beautiful weekend nice um yeah so for anyone who doesn't know what Mackinac Island is it's like an island sure you forget in northern that in Michigan, Michigan yeah. that people don't know what it is yeah it's like a very touristy place though now there was people from all over like internationally that were there well, but like the, people were from the thing is, is there's no vehicles or cars on no the so you have to take a ferry to the island and then you just walk or you bike or there's carriage rides yeah. yeah. Uh, Timothy, like, have you ever been to Mackinac Island? Uh, no, I haven't. I've never heard of it before. Oh, so. oh yeah. Goodness. You'll have you to forget that in Michigan. Next yeah. time I'm back up there, I'll have to try it. Yeah. yeah. There's a beautiful, like, big hotel. It's called the Grand Hotel. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of fun. You can sit on the porch. There's, like, a little bar on, like, the sixth floor that we went up to that you could, like, overlook everything. It was super cool. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Well, look at that little tourist uh, attraction for everybody to check out. Yeah. And she says she doesn't go anywhere. Right. <laughs> That's you true, know what, Timothy. You guys. Good point. All right, but some time off gave me some time. You Timothy, know? do you want to tell us all the things you've been doing this summer? Because you uh, have been all been, over the place. I've Well, uh, we did go to the Bark and Brew earlier yeah, this year. Yeah, you oh did. My Surprise, Leslie and Christina, and my, got to meet their parents. Yes. Yes. And I got to meet Johnny. He does exist, everybody. <laughs> he does exist. And uh, <laughs> we had a long talk. I said uh, I could be up there in 14 hours if need be. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, I told him. So uh, I had a good time at the Bark and Brew way back when. Timothy, you just keep calling it Bark and Brew. I think you forgot that it was my birthday. Oh, oh yes, yeah. it was your birthday. <laughs> Leslie, Leslie did not know we were going to be the there. the the event. And then uh, Leslie come up. I had my head turned away from her and turned around. We all started singing happy birthday and Leslie started crying. <laughs> so it was a, I got to see everybody again. Uh, Melissa Wise and, and Rochelle and Donnie and all the whole, the whole crowd. It was great to be up there. We've done some camping this year. We've got some more camping yet to do. And I've got a cruise in September. We're going to Alaska again. Yay! Nice. With Glacier. 
So uh, we have not stopped our travels yet. That's fantastic. Yes. Well, good. So everybody's having a good summer. I'm just hanging in there. Nothing exciting on my (laughs) end. Just living day to day. Kids are running around outside all the time and lots of work to be done. But I'm happy we're all back together here and getting started again on season five, which is nuts. Yes. All right. Well, today's guest is here and he's going to share some of his medical expertise and discuss a little bit more about legal blindness with us. Yes. Dr. Matt Tracy is a board certified ophthalmologist and has co-authored peer-reviewed publications presented on various topics and has participated in clinical research trials. He received his Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine at Michigan State University. Dr. Tracy, welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and why'd you pick the ophthalmology or ophthalmologist as a career? Of course, yeah. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast here. I'm so excited to be here. Um, my uh, my path to medical school and ophthalmology was a little bit different than the uh, than the average person because I never wanted to go to medical school. Actually, <laughs> uh, my uh, my father was a ophthalmologist, and uh, I saw kind of what he was doing, and I decided I was going to go in a different direction. So uh, this is actually a second career for me. I worked as a river systems fisheries biologist, oh, wow. um, which is kind of like a marine biologist, except instead of in the ocean, you work in the rivers. Yeah, interesting. And uh, after a few years of doing that, I realized I wanted to do something where I could maybe help people a little bit more and more directly and, and feel like I was making a contribution. And I decided to uh, go back to school. Believe it or not, the um, requirements for working with fish and with people are a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> so I ended up uh, getting a master's degree um, before I went back to medical school. And then when I went to medical school, I decided that I, I wasn't going to go into ophthalmology because I wasn't going to do exactly what my dad did. Yeah. And um, it turns out I am my father's son. I just, I like it. <laughs> yeah. the, the eye is, uh, it's a, a beautiful thing to study in, in both health and disease. It's, it's, uh, it's a it's beautiful thing. And, and in addition to that, it appealed to my sense, ophthalmology appealed to my sense of um, science, which I really enjoy. And so ophthalmology is at the cutting edge of uh, basically every type of medical innovation. And so um, all of those things together, you know, it was a perfect fit for me. And I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. That's interesting. So what was that like moment when you were like, okay, it, this is actually yeah. what I want to do. And how was your dad's reaction? Well, I, somehow he, he just wanted me to be happy, you know, whatever yeah. it was, it didn't really matter. Um, what the, uh, he, he was pretty happy when I was working with fish, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think he was, he was pretty excited when <laughs> I actually decided to follow directly in his footsteps <laughs> yeah. because he was a, an adult and pediatric vitreoretinal surgeon, which is exactly what I do. And so uh, I actually work in his um, in his practice now, and I've taken over the care of a lot of his long-term patients, which is really, is, it's truly an honor. So yeah. um, it's been a very, very nice thing. That is oh, so good. cool. And we've heard your name from several clients throughout the years, Dr. Tracy, probably from both you and your father, um, and nothing but rave reviews. So thank you for the work that you guys are doing. That's yes. very, very nice of you to say. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, you know, wonder, I didn't know this, to be honest, before I started at Leader Dog, like what? is legal blindness and how does someone get that diagnosis? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that there's a a large misconception about what blindness is. Um, You know, I think most people think of it as being completely no light perception, can't Mm -hmm. see anything at all. And that's just not true. The vast majority of people 
actually do have some some level of vision. And um, the Social Security Administration kind of defines visual acuity based on Snellen visual acuity, which is what we use in the clinic. So that's that's when somebody says, you know, uh, I'm 20-20. That means yeah. you see at 20 feet what the average person sees at 20 feet. And so the Social Security Administration defines legal blindness as being 2200 or worse in the better seeing eye. So okay. that means at 20 feet, you see what the average person sees at 200 feet. And then once oh, you get wow. past that, you, you, you go off the chart and you start talking about uh, counting fingers or hand motion, both of which are ambulatory vision. And then you start talking about things like light perception versus no light perception. So legal yeah. blindness encompasses all of that from 2200 and below. But there's a second definition also, um, because you can be legally blind and have 20-20 vision. And oh, that's wow. because you can have a constricted visual field. Certain types of, of um, diseases, such as advanced glaucoma, for example, or retinitis pigmentosa, they rob you from your vision from the outside in. And so a lot of people will equate it to looking down a straw. I, I had one, um, which I had one patient in particular who told me that um, he was 15 and he had retinitis pigmentosa, and he told me he'd never seen his mom's entire face. We were able to fit him with some assistive technology yeah. that allowed him to actually see his mom's face for the first time oh my ever. Gosh. I can't imagine what that feels like. Like to it, it was pretty powerful, not even being the young man, yeah. you know, yeah. just watching the experience. It was pretty powerful. So, so I didn't know that. I did not know that someone could be twenty twenty and legally blind. I think I, I think that can also be confusing if someone's told that. So how? Do you walk through that process with someone of kind of diagnosing them as legally blind and then helping them to understand, you know, what that exactly means? You know, that's a that's a tough question because there are so many different ways that people arrive at, the, at you know, visual impairment. Yeah. Um, individuals who have their, their central vision affected oftentimes know that there's a problem, you know. Um, glaucoma, famously though, it, where it takes your vision from the outside in, as I mentioned, um, people won't notice that they've lost vision until almost 50% of their visual field is gone. And so it's really important to be involved with prevention because once you're at the point where you're talking about legal blindness, oftentimes um, it's hard to prevent things. It's hard to get things back once mm -hmm. you've lost it. Um, so, you know, I guess to answer your question though, you know, how do you navigate that? The, the first thing is that People who've lost their central vision are already aware, yeah. um, but they oftentimes are functioning pretty well. And so trying to get people to understand that they have had this vision loss and that there are other avenues for them to have fulfilling lives and do things and, um, and uh, that maybe aren't necessarily just involving their central vision is an important part of that process about navigating that diagnosis of legal blindness. Yeah. Is it because, so when it's happening, you know, the outside closing in, people just adapt so easily and so well that it's harder to identify that that's happening? I think that's true. And, you know, when you think about it, you don't really use your peripheral vision as much in your day-to-day -day life, right? And so if it's slowly going away, you may not notice it. Timothy, is that something you experience? So Timothy also has retinitis pigmentosa. My retinitis pigmentosa is a little bit different, a little bit. Uh, mine's more, let's say, about 40% of the vision and field. There's a lot of dead spots. I have some peripheral, but when you start moving towards the center, it disappears until it's right in front of my face, and then I can see my hand again. So it's just, there's all kinds of very difference of retinitis pigmentosis in the way it affects people. Um, it, it's the, fa the faces are starting to deteriorate. I can't see my wife's face anymore, my grandchildren or my children. So it's, it's starting to affect me really heavily now. So it's a, it's a devastating uh, diagnosis, but it's not the end of the world. We just adapt. 
Absolutely. And I think to Christina's point, it's so interesting sometimes, even when we're talking to clients and we're saying, you know, we have these services available or there's things that you can do. So many times they don't feel like they are deserving of the services. They're like, well, I'm not totally blind. I can still see. I still have some, you know, usable vision and trying to get past that and let people know and understand exactly what blindness means. I've also had clients talk to me about how, you know, and we always say vision is tricky, right? What you see today might be different than tomorrow or even later in the day, depending on the lighting, depending on your strain and all sorts of things. But um, clients have been questioned sometimes in a situation because maybe they're carrying a long cane, but they're actively looking at something like reading a, um, a card in the store or something. Timothy, have you experienced that? I can't tell you how many times somebody says, you don't look blind, or I can't tell you're blind because you're looking right at me. They don't understand that just because I'm legally blind doesn't mean I don't have any vision. And they expect me not to have any. And sometimes I feel that's, uh, people are questioning me all the time, like doubting that I am, you know, blind just because I can't see good. Uh, That means I can't see, I'm blind. And just because I can look at you doesn't mean that I cannot see. And I run into that all the time. You know, I think you're not alone in that, Timothy. It's it's a very common thing. And like I mentioned before, we use Snell and Visual Acuity, which is that 2020 number or 2200 number. And it's really an artificial way of evaluating your vision because basically you look with one eye at a time at black letters and a white background. And that is not how the world is. Mm. So there's a much better way to test your vision, which is called a functional visual assessment, but it takes a lot longer. And so mm-hmm. we don't actually get to do that very often in the ophthalmologist's office. Um, and you know, to your point, Timothy, about you know, um, oftentimes low levels of vision can be very, um, very, very functional, very, very helpful. It, it also is different when you're, um, let's say, a child and you're, you're born with a low level of vision. Oftentimes your functionality is significantly different than if you lost vision at an older age. And so I think all of those things kind of play in. That's really interesting. So when you are diagnosing people or having these conversations and you kind of say those words blindness or you're now legally blind, how do you deliver that news? Well, I think that... Um, I think that there's actually a progression that's there. You know, um, for example, if you have a patient with, let's say, macular degeneration, mm-hmm. um, there can be an event where they lose vision, significant levels of vision, um, quickly. So they go from 2040 to maybe 2200 because they've had a hemorrhage that happens in the center of their vision. Yeah. And so, you know, you're at that time you're in a you're in the fight mode, right? Where you want to say, let's make sure that we're giving you all of your medications, and I'll see you every month. We're going to try to get rid of this blood and help you as much as you can. Because oftentimes you can regain significant levels of vision. Um, but once once you're past that stage, then you really need to start thinking about, you know, um, different different scenarios that may be, may be involved. So um, I guess what I'm getting at is that initially, if something has changed, we're trying to fix it. Yeah. But it, after a period of time, if we're unable to get back to where we were, then we start really having that conversation about what does uh, legal blindness mean. And um, I think an area that perhaps ophthalmologists could be doing a better job would be talking to patients about what their options are about living their life moving forward. You know, what are you having trouble with? Can you see the food on your plate to eat? Are you able to walk around independently? How are you doing, you know, in um, low contrast environments? You know, those are all things that... um, ophthalmologists in general could probably do a better job talking to their patients about. Yeah. And I know um, 
you know, we hear it from our clients a lot. They hide blind, so they don't want to tell anyone. And maybe they don't want to get care because they're, you know, afraid of what they're going to get told. I guess what suggestions or what can you say to help someone who might be going through that right now, who maybe is a little too afraid to go to their ophthalmologist or to find, um, you know, professional care? I think that's a great question. And it's one that we run into frequently. You know, Mm -hmm. I I had um, a patient last week who has been legally blind for years and didn't know it. And so it's really important to have an open dialogue and say, you know, what is my diagnosis? What is my visual potential? Where am I going to be in a few years? And if you're stable with low levels of vision, you know, what does that mean? And all of us went to school because we want to help people, right? That's, That's our whole goal. So you tell us what the issue is and we'll hopefully find a way to help you out. That's that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Yes. And so many times I don't think people understand that with that legal blindness diagnosis, like you're saying, there are resources available. So, you know, connecting with a low vision therapist and talking about those like high contrast things or different tools that you can use to just make what you do have more usable. Absolutely. And then there's the flip side, like Leader Dog, right? Our services, you know, we are lucky that we can serve people who aren't quite legally blind, but a lot of organizations or a lot of agencies need that little box checked of legal blindness. So while that is an extremely difficult thing to hear in a difficult conversation, there are resources available. So understanding that while you don't want to hear it and you don't want to get it, it is going to be beneficial to have that. So the sooner you know, the better. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I've noticed though is that it takes it takes patients time to get to the point where they're mm-hmm. ready and willing and able to accept the services. So I think it's a two-part thing, you know, yeah. one where you want to have the conversation about legal blindness and whether or not you qualify for it. And then the second part is, you know, how can we change things to make things better? And being open to both sides of that and working with an ophthalmologist or, um, or optometrist, you know, who can help you achieve those things, I think is really important. Yeah. Timothy, what was that like for you during that process? I know we've talked a little bit about it, but the first time you heard the words blindness, maybe. When I was 12 years old, everybody knows I got diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosis. It really affected me through the high school and schooling. It affected my education and stuff. But it really started getting on me when the older I got because I started losing everything, driving, the ability to do stuff. So it was devastating, but it's just like a, I tell everybody it's like a slow death. And, um, Sometimes I, I don't want it to disappear overnight, but it's, it's been very, ter- very turmoil going through this. It's not an easy thing to go through, but since I've been to Leader Dog and I got the tools that I need, uh, I'm able to cope with it because I know I can do anything. I, I've been traveling all over the country, sometimes by myself. I couldn't do that six years ago. So it's given me an optimist, optimist optimistical life now. <laughs> uh, just going. That's a hard word to say uh, right actually- now, so... I love it. Optimistical versus, you know what? That's a great intro into optometrist versus ophthalmologist. I think this is a question we get all the time and I still sometimes get confused by it. What is the biggest difference? How do people know who they should see? Yeah, great question. You know, I think that um, the reason that there is such a uh, hard time figuring out what the difference is is because it's two groups of people who are really there to try to help you with your eyes, right? Yeah. the, the main difference, though, is the, uh, is the schooling. So uh, doctors of optometry go to um, optometry school and uh, ophthalmologists go to medical school and are physicians. In addition to that, ophthalmologists end up doing an internship and residency, and then they can subspecialize further doing a fellowship. And because mm-hmm. of all that extra training, in most states, 
Ophthalmologists are the only ones who are able to do uh, surgery, okay. um, which would include incisional and laser surgery and things like that. However, we all work together, and that's yeah. the point, particularly for individuals with very low levels of vision. You know, there are um, things that an optometrist can do that the ophthalmologist doesn't do routinely, and so um, it's better to see an, opto an optometrist for uh, certain types of things, like uh, low vision referrals are a huge one where yeah. the optometrist is, is uh, more adept at what the low vision devices are than the ophthalmologist. And the, you know, and conversely, you know, if you need surgery for something, you're more likely to go see an ophthalmologist because that's what we do. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it seems like most times we're hearing from clients, you know, they're kind of originally diagnosed with an optometrist and then kind of sent to see an ophthalmologist. So like, are there some of those bigger cures, whether it be a surgery, something or medication or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's usually how it works. And then when people start losing significant levels of vision, oftentimes we are working together to try to get everybody that, you know, as much as they can get back. Yeah. And I know, um, you know, with you know, technology changing and all of that, has that changed the way that you diagnose and treat someone? Is there now things out there that might help someone a little better and that sort of stuff? So this, I love this topic um, because there's so many exciting and new things happening in the field of ophthalmology. Yeah. Um, you know, first of all, if we if we think just very generally about um, low vision devices, right? Um, they're the main, the backbone of that for forever has been sort of illumination and magnification. But now there are new devices that are coming out that are incredible. Um, some of them actually uh, are like a VR headset that you can wear oh, wow. that will shift the, uh, like let's say you have macular degeneration, yeah. you lost the vision in the center. Um, they'll shift the image that you're looking for off to the side to an area where you can actually see it. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's really amazing stuff. That's crazy. Um, and in addition to that, you know, I told you earlier about that young man I was working with um, who he wore Google Glasses. Um, and Google Glass has actually come out with a new program where they're trying to help patients with visual disability through these assistive devices. So that I think is really exciting. And it's, it's now, you know, it's happening yeah. now, which is great. Yeah. But that is so cool. there are other things too that are, they, this, these are the things that get me really excited mm -hmm. because you have um, gene therapy. Ophthalmology was the first field in all of medicine to implement a gene therapy approach for something called Leber's congenital amurosis and okay. RPE65 mutation. Um, which has some roots here. The origins have some roots here in Michigan, which is kind of interesting too. Oh, wow. Um, so that is very exciting. And um, that is basically you're using a gene therapy to actually transfect the cells so that they have that, uh, so that they can produce those proteins. Another that, that are lacking under the normal situation, but another situation that you can do is you can kind of transfect the cells to turn into little chemical factories, right? So currently, for example, like uh, diabetic retinopathy or, yeah. or macular degeneration, yeah. we have patients who come in every four weeks, six weeks, and they get injections inside their eyes of a medication. Well, what if you could use gene therapy to make the medication using your own cells, yeah. and then you wouldn't have to get the injections anymore? So there are clinical trials that are currently ongoing for that, which is really exciting. That is wild and amazing to see. And I'm sure for you, awesome to see that you're having more um, solutions for your patients and changing their lives in that way. The thing that's even more exciting to me is the regenerative medicine approaches. So uh, yeah. things like stem cell therapy, where you're actually able to utilize the body's own neural circuitry to restore vision um, that's a little bit further off, but it's very, very exciting. And then finally, we can, there are implantable microchips for diseases like retinitis pigmentosa that the FDA has already approved, um, which are very exciting. Um, the, the, the 
microchip works where you, you wear a pair of glasses mm -hmm. and there's a camera right in the middle and it sends a wireless signal to a retinal chip that allows patients to see kind of through the camera. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is, well, Technology is wild, yeah. right? Like it's insane. It is. It's amazing. But what Things that were science fiction a few years ago are, are the truth now. Really, yeah. really, like really wonderful, happening. exciting time. That is really exciting. We worked with clients for, I don't know if Argus is still a thing. Yeah. Argus. Yeah, that's the, that's is the that retinal the, chip. Yeah. Okay, yeah. The Argus so 2 implant. Mm -hmm. We've worked with a couple clients who had that, and it was so interesting, you know, on our end, too, trying to figure out and navigate what could they see and how could they interpret that, and then how could that be used in the practical world. Yeah. Um, so we do at Leader Dog try to stay a little bit on top, not as deep into the medical yeah. stuff, but we try to <laughs> stay advanced or in front of the technology because our clients are going to be coming to us with this. It doesn't mean that it's always like a fix it, right? Uh, that vision's going to be completely restored. So we need to be prepared to work with clients with this technology. How can we make it, you know, useful in the real world and in their travel skills? So that's really exciting to hear all of the things. And I can imagine that that's really exciting in your career. I know I get excited about like a new cane or a new GPS device or something like that. Because <laughs> you're just yeah. super pumped about how it's going to impact people's lives. But I would imagine that's very exciting. It is. It's a wonder wonderfully exciting. Yes. So, Dr. Tracy, when you're going to tell a patient, we're going to give you, put a needle in your eye, how does that work? Because <laughs> the thought of that just makes me cringe. You know, uh, that's a conversation I have a lot, actually. And um, you are not alone on, on feeling the cringe there. Um, mm -hmm. But fortunately, we have it down to a science, um, no pun intended there. <laughs> and uh, usually it's a painless process and people don't even know that I've done it. That's interesting. My grandpa has, uh, or yeah, has macular degeneration and he got shots for many years and he used to, you know, squirm and be so giddish about it. And then, you know, it just becomes part of normal life and going in and doing it. And he used to always joke with the doctor like, oh, you got the wrong eye, you know, or oh, <laughs> yeah. <God. laughs> that's totally my grandpa. <laughs> He is said that joke is a little too much. <laughs> yeah, now he just jokes with me. I gave him his first cane. I called him the other day. He's like, I lost that stick again. I'm like, Grandpa, it's a cane. And also, you should have it with you all the time. But that's a whole, he's a whole other subject. That's very funny. Though. Another podcast. Yeah, he's a whole, he's a whole subject. Um, but another thing that we're doing recently or starting to do is the Medical Advisory Committee, which we've recently asked you to be a part of. And so we're hoping to kind of have these conversations and a bigger impact. What can we do on our end to, um, you know, talk to doctors out there and let them know that our services exist. And on the flip end, what can we get from doctors on our end to be helping our clients in their real world travel impact? You know, I'm so excited to be participating in the uh, Medical Advisory Committee. I think it's going to be a really um, wonderful relationship between leader dogs and the ophthalmologists, um, hopefully across the country, but certainly in this area. Um, and I kind of hinted at this earlier is that ophthalmologists really could do a lot better job of providing um, their legally blind patients with uh, information about services. And so I think that this is going to be a nice first step to sort of um, integrate that into our practice and make people aware of it. An important first step towards that, too, I think is going to be Leader Dog's presentation at the Michigan Society of Eye Physicians and Surgeons meeting this summer, um, where they're going to have, you guys will have the opportunity to really remind everybody, hey, that's part of your job, too. So yeah. <laughs> yes, let's which, do it. Thank you for helping us get that connection. And funny enough, that ties back into Mackinac Island, because it it's going to be, oh, the conference okay. is going to be in Mackinac. Look at this full circle right? moment oh. here. I knew it. I knew it. I just, yeah. yeah. But we're we really excited to be there and to help with those conversations, because I think, you know, we hear from our clients so many times, like, I didn't even know I was legally blind, but it turns out I've been legally blind for nine years. Well, 
you know, that's a big piece on so many different fronts and ends. But you guys, obviously, when you're in school, are focusing so much on the science and how to help people with their anatomy and the vision. And and we learn more about the travel. So connecting these two worlds, I think, is going to be really exciting and having the expertise from you and other uh, medical professionals in the field. I'm super pumped about the committee. I really think we're going to have an impact. Me too. I'm excited. Yeah. I think we should end with, you know, do you have any tips or suggestions on how someone should just kind of continue caring and protecting? their eyes? That's a great question. Um, I see a a lot of uh, patients with very low levels of vision and um, I get that question a lot. Mm -hmm. And they say, you know, why do I have to keep coming back to you? You're not doing much for me. Um, You know, things have been stable for a long time. And my answer is always, well, number one, I need to make sure that the health of the eye is maintained. Okay. Um, And so there are things that can happen that you can't feel or see. And so just having somebody check in on you every now and then is an important part. Mm -hmm. Um, Another important part is um, maintaining that light perception vision at a minimum. And I think that uh, if you're able to do that, you have uh, more opportunity for regenerative medicine potential in the future. Mm -hmm. So that neural circuitry between your eye and your brain constitutes 1.5 million axons. And the neural circuitry is very complicated. And so if you're able to keep that going, then you've got more options moving forward. So I think that those reasons um, are important to kind of protect the eye. And then at a more basic level, you know, wearing protective glasses is also an important thing because freak accidents happen. And those glasses can function kind of like goggles to keep your eyes safe. But I do think it's really important, even if you have low levels of vision, to make sure you're still checking in and making sure that everything's okay. It gives us an opportunity to talk about what's available for you out there and how you're doing and all those types of things. Yeah. Well, those are great tips and a great way to end this podcast because we're already out of time. (laughs) I know. I wouldn't have thought of some of that. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Taking the Lead podcast. I'm Leslie Hoskins with hosts Timothy Cugno and Christina Hepner. We hope you enjoyed learning from Dr. Tracy and discussing blindness a little bit deeper. Please join us next week as we continue to dive into the world of blindness. Yes, and if you'd like to learn more about applying to LeaderDog for free services, you can head to LeaderDog.org or call us at 888-777-5332. And don't forget, you can reach us at taking the lead at LeaderDog.org with any questions or ideas. And if you like today's podcast, make sure to hit subscribe and check us out wherever podcasts stream.